And I hope you brought your New Testament with you. And if you'll open it to the book of Romans, we'll give you an overview in the next four days of the hardest book to understand in all scripture. Simply because it is approached in the wrong way. What do I mean by that? This is not a personal letter. If you've been to a lectureship or a symposium or a seminar and you've listened to scholars read their papers to you about some subject, then you have an idea of what the book of Romans is. It was written to the church at Rome, but not in a personal way very much. The Holy Spirit had Paul discuss the most important subject for mankind when he had him write this epistle. This is a treatise, a manuscript, a research paper on the subject of righteousness. Look in your Old Testament for a moment at Job 9.2. Job 9.2. And if someone would read that for us. How should man, or how can man, King James says, be just before God? Paul answers that question in the book of Romans. How can a man be righteous before God? It is the contention of many denominational scholars that righteousness is ascribed to man the moment he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And many of them go to this book of Romans to try to prove that. That justification or righteousness or how can a man be just before God is a matter of faith only. And the moment you believe, you are justified. When you read the book of Romans and read the word righteous or righteousness, Substitute justification. Righteousness, brothers and sisters, takes place in the mind of God. It is a legal term. It's the point at which God says, you can now stand before me. Our older preachers described it this way. God looks at me, justified, never sinned. I'm justified. I am not sinless. And I want to talk about that a little bit tomorrow night because too many of us think that in order to go to heaven we must have perfection or sinlessness. Not possible. It is not possible for mankind to be sinless. Even when he doesn't obey the gospel, he's sinful simply because he didn't obey the gospel. If he were perfect morally, he couldn't go to heaven until he obeyed the gospel. And so we're going to study a book that teaches us how to be righteous before God Almighty. Another point in introducing this book, I want you to notice how Paul uses the word faith in this book and how he uses the word law. In this book, the word faith is not referring to your personal faith. It's referring to the system called the New Testament gospel. It is that system of faith that justifies us not our personal faith. Martin Luther got so confused about Romans and James that he decided James should be thrown out of the Bible because James said, you see that how by works a man is justified and not by faith only 
James 2, 24. And yet Paul talks about justification by faith, Romans 4, 3. Well, how can we have a harmony between those two statements? Not until we realize that the word faith in the book of Romans is a descriptive term of the whole system of faith, the whole gospel system. And when you study the book of Galatians, don't make the mistake of reading the word faith there as personal faith. We'll talk about that Thursday night. That's the word that describes the whole New Testament system. I'll give you an example, Galatians 3.23. Before faith came, we were kept under the law. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You lived under the law of Moses, but you had personal faith in God, didn't you? Yes. Moses had personal faith in God, didn't he? Yes. Joshua had personal faith in God, didn't he? Yes. And they all lived under the law of Moses, but you said before faith came, we were kept under the law. He means before the New Testament gospel came, we were kept under the law. So you're going to have to learn a new definition of the word faith when you study Galatians and Romans. He's talking about the whole gospel system. Look at Romans 3.27, someone, and read it for us, please. Notice how Paul uses the word faith here. Someone, please. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? That's the law of Moses. Nay, by the law of faith. The law of faith. That's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the New Testament. And that's the system that justifies us, not my personal faith. When we read in Romans 5, 1, for, for instance, therefore being justified by faith, we might read there, therefore being justified by the New Testament gospel system. And many, many have made a mistake here about the book of Romans. In fact, Luther got so upset that he added the word only to his German translation at Romans 3.28. Somebody read 3.28. And he went the word only there, or Alain in the German. Faith only. No, Martin, we're justified by the New Testament system. That's why he wanted to throw out James. In 1992, I was privileged to debate Rubel Shelley in Memphis on this very subject. And we used Romans 5 and James 2 in that debate. And Rubel had taken the position that we cannot contribute one whit to our salvation. I said, how about a half wit? Because I'm a half-wit, can I contribute me to my salvation? Well, he missed it, didn't he? He took Luther's position. So we've learned two things now. Righteousness is a legal term. It takes place in the mind of God. God must declare me righteous. Can he do that? How did God declare Adam righteous? How did God declare Moses righteous? How does God declare Keith righteous? By the same person. Adam was declared righteous because of the blood of Christ. Moses was declared righteous because of the blood of Christ. Keith is declared righteous because of the blood of Christ. Adam was looking forward to it. I'm looking back at it. God declares me righteous in his son. Somebody read Hebrews 9.15, please. I wish I had a blackboard here. You got a blackboard or a whiteboard or... Yeah, that'd be fine. You got one? Can we get it? Or Okay. Need some help. And for this cause he is the mediator of the, of the New Testament, and by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. 
Now, how did Adam achieve a state where God could declare him righteous? How did Moses achieve a state where God could declare him righteous? We're going to read at Romans 4, 3 that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. How many of you have ever been in a position where you had to go to the store and buy something on account? On account you couldn't pay for it. Did you ever buy anything on account? How many of you have ever bought anything on account? What does that mean? That you never were going to pay it? Or what? What does it mean? You pay it later. All right. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham had some credit. When I get that board, I want to draw him a picture because I can't draw it yet. Okay, we have the definition of righteousness. It takes place in the mind of God. It's a legal term. I am legally righteous. I am not sinlessly perfect. I am legally righteous. In fact, I have a very good lawyer. In fact, I have the best lawyer that there is, and he argues my case before God, 1 John 2, 1. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we have the definition of the word righteousness. We have the idea that uh, God, Paul's going to answer the question, how can I be righteous? And we have the idea that faith in the book of Romans has to do with a whole system. Law in the book of Romans has to do with the law of Moses or the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, but he will define it for us each time. He means the law of Moses or the law of faith, one or the other. My greatest goal in life is to get my brethren to buy four by eight boards instead of these little ones. What do you think? Right there is fine. Can you see that back there? Somebody read Romans 8, 1 and 2, please. There is therefore no, now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh. Now you're going to have another problem. I want you to underline the word flesh in the book of Romans. It doesn't mean your skin. It doesn't mean the body you're living in. It doesn't mean your carnal desires. All right? In the book of Romans, the word flesh is descriptive of the law of Moses. Same thing in the book of Galatians. You have the word law now. It can be used in two ways. Law of faith, law of Moses. Flesh, law of Moses. Or living under the law of Moses is to walk in the flesh. Look at Romans 7, 5. Romans 7, 5, please. For when we were in the flesh, what? Emotions of sin. Passions of sin. Which were? By the law. By the law. Now notice when he says he was in the flesh. Did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. When, when was Paul in the flesh? According to that verse. When he lived under the old law. He was in his body when he wrote Romans. 
So he can't mean when I was in my body. He means when I lived under the law of Moses. So when you study the book of Romans, remember the word flesh now means when I lived under the law of Moses. I walked in the flesh. Not my carnal desire, but I walked under a different system. A system which could not justify me. A system under which God had no way to make me righteous, to declare me righteous. Here's Adam back here in the Garden of Eden. God is looking this way at mankind. Man living after, uh, under the patriarchal system could be declared righteous. Why? Man living under the law of Moses could be declared righteous. Why? Man living under the law of Christ is actually righteous. We are made the righteousness of God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Why? God was looking at the cross here and forgiving men in prospect of the cross. Forgiving what men? Those men who kept the law under which they lived. And if they kept the law under which they lived, God could in prospect forgive them. Now was God righteous in doing that? Let's look at Romans 3 beginning at verse 22. Paul actually answers the question, was God righteous in doing that? Start in verse 22, someone. The righteousness of God, God's righteousness, is made known through the gospel. Go ahead. Go ahead, keep going. Whom God, whom Christ, God the Father has set forth, manifested publicly, to be a propitiation. The word there is the word which means mercy seat. You want to know where to meet God? At Christ, he's the mercy seat. You being a priest must meet him at the mercy seat. Go ahead. To, now wait, to declare his righteousness. Who's God the Father? When Christ was made known publicly and died on that cross, he made a public declaration of God's righteousness. Now, why did that need to be made? Why was that necessary? Watch what he says. Go ahead. For the remission of sins that are what? That are past. What are those sins? Those ones back here. Wait, 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 wait. Stare at it. God's righteousness was declared through the public death of his son to declare his righteousness, God's, for the remission of sins that are past. When God forgave these people, his son hadn't died yet. Was God righteous in doing that? Yes, he could see the cross. He knew it was going to happen. Why do you think Adam and Eve didn't die that day they were told they were going to die? That sounds unrighteous to me because God said you should be put to death physically. If you'll study that phrase, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, it means dying thou shalt die, and it's used every time in the Old Testament for capital punishment, every time. It means they should have died that day physically. Why didn't they? You remember symbolically that God killed some animals for them and made them skins because they had the wrong covering? You not understand what you're reading there? God declared them righteous. How? 
there was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Somebody died for them already in God's mind. Now, was God righteous in doing that? Keep reading. Let's see. To the forbearance of God. God overlooked. Acts 17.30 The times of this ignorance, the times that were characterized by ignorance of the judgment day, God overlooked, looked right over the top of them. That's what it means. I think the King James says God winked at. That's a horrible translation of that phrase there. Sounds like God's winking at their sin, doesn't it? Okay, you guys, go ahead and fornicate and whatever you're doing there, and I'll just wink at it. No, 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 no. The times characterized by ignorance of something, and in verse 31 he tells us ignorance of the judgment day because he hadn't said it yet. God overlooked. He looked right over the top of them. But now, brethren, there is a judgment day set, and you better repent. But here is God overlooking that whole thing at the cross. Was he righteous? Keep reading there. Verse 20, I don't know where you are, 25, 24, 26. Now, whose righteousness? Let me ask the class. Whose righteousness is being declared in the cross? God's. For forgiving those sins back here in prospect. Go ahead. Now you have the theme of Romans. How can a man be just before God? Only, the answer to the question, how can a man be just before God? Only, let's read Romans 1, 16 and 17. You have the theme, now get the thesis of Paul's dissertation here on righteousness. Paul says, I am not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. The, the, the is not in the original language. God has other powers. He has creative power. He has uh, providential power. But there's only one power he uses to save. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of that, Paul says. He literally means I'm not confused by this message. This doesn't confuse me at all. There's only one power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth. To the Jew first. Why the Jew first? Because God used them to bring the Messiah. And also to the Greek. That's you and I. We Gentiles have a chance through the gospel too. For therein, verse 17 is revealed, and the, Ameri the Greek says, a righteousness of God, not only the way to be righteous, but God's righteousness. Both are revealed in the gospel. God was righteous in forgiving sins that are past, and he has made a way to be righteous before him. As it is written, and now he goes back to Habakkuk 2.4, and I want to walk back there with you. Habakkuk 2.4. What is Righteousness. Somebody, anybody. What is righteousness? Legal term takes place where? Mind of God. God justifies us. In, in, in fact, that'd be a good way to translate this word in Romans. How does Paul use the word faith in Romans when he's using the word law with it? The whole system of, of uh, the New Testament gospel. The faith, exactly. And Acts 6, 7, a great company of priests were, were obedient to the faith, that kind of thing. 
Okay, what, what was I talking about? Oh, how does Paul use the word flesh in this book? Talk about living out of the old law. All right, and where did I go now? Where was it? Habakkuk 2.4. All right, somebody. His heart what? His soul is the Babylonian king. And, and Habakkuk's writing about the fact that this king is not right and they're going to have to go to war with him. But if you want to survive this war, he's going to tell them how. Go ahead. If you want to survive, then you have to live by faith. Now, this word faith in the Old Testament is the same term used when it says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. This word means that you trust God and do whatever he says to do, all opponents to the contrary notwithstanding. You trust God, you do whatever he says to do, any adversary or opponent to the contrary notwithstanding. So the just shall survive Babylon by his faith. All right, now Paul takes that phrase and puts it over in Romans and says, in the gospel, God's righteousness and the way to be righteous is declared, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What kind of faith, though? Somebody read Romans 1.5. Obedience to the faith. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Romans teaches faith only. It doesn't do it. Don't get confused about the words flesh and spirit and law and faith in Romans. It's a different kind of a book, and it's very hard to understand. Let's outline it. Let's outline it. Unless someone has a question. If you have a question, just ask up. Otherwise, I keep talking. I don't ever know when to stop. How many of you studied Romans in depth? Uh-oh, two, three. All right. Did you pass? Oh, okay. The first eight chapters of Romans are a unit. And in that section, Paul proves his thesis that only in the gospel of Christ is man saved. The law of Moses didn't do it. The patriarchal system didn't do it. Only in Christ can a man be declared righteous before God. You know, God let Abraham go to paradise. And yet he wasn't technically justified until Christ died on the cross. Was God righteous in doing that? Absolutely. He knew his son was coming. And it's that blood that saves us. That's why the Hebrews writer says it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. In those sacrifices is a remembrance made every year of sin. Wouldn't you feel good if every time you came to worship, Brother Pritchard said, well, goodbye now, and you're all still in sin. When you brought your lamb to the priest, he could have told you that. You're forgiven, but only in prospect. <coughs> and we're going to remember that you're a sinner next year, too. Because in those sacrifices is a remembrance made of sin every year. Hebrews 10, 1 through 6. So here you are, I'm being reminded I'm still a sinner under the law of Moses. 
And people kept the law of Moses. Zechariah and Elizabeth walked in all the commandments of the Lord, blameless. Luke 1, 6. John the Baptist's parents were blameless under the law of Moses, but not, not justified. Why? Because an animal is not equal to a man. God can't justify a man by killing an animal. Not equal. Different species. Who sinned in the Garden of Eden? Adam. Was Adam sinless before he sinned? Absolutely. What happens when a sinless man sins? Nobody in this room can sin after the similitude of Adam. Romans chapter 5 is not possible. He opened the door to sin. He was sinless and then he sinned. Now God, who is just, has a problem. And man does too. Because God cannot justify that sinless, that sinless man who sinned unless a sinless man takes his place. Now, anybody want to guess who had to do that? Who did that? Jesus the Christ. <coughs> sinless. Let's read Hebrews 2.9. Did I call it another verse before that? Good. But we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. To be made a little lower than the angels is to live on earth. They're up there. Doesn't mean lower in character or lower in whatever. It means down here. Lower as to space and time. We're underneath them. They're up there. So he came to earth for the suffering of death. We see him. Now watch what your Bible says there at Hebrews 2.9 crowned with glory and honor. That's not a reference to Jesus being in heaven. That's not what he's talking about. When the psalmist wrote this, he was talking about man crowned with glory and honor. When man was created, he was sinless. He was crowned with glory and honor. Well, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. He's sinless that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. I actually heard a gospel preacher say one time in a sermon that God could have saved us any way he wanted to. He decided to send his son. That is absolute error. There's no remission. Absolute. The son of God had to die. That sinless sacrifice had to take place because God's justice demanded it. Remember, every time we sin, we sin against an infinite God. That makes our sin infinite and the consequences of it infinite. When it, go ahead. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. When um, Brother Warren debated Antony Flew, Antony kept arguing, why would God send a man to hell for a sin? He said, I might punish my children, but not with a blowtorch in the face. Brother Warren said, Mr. Flew, you don't understand the consequences of sin. When you sin, you sin against an infinite God, no matter what the sin is. Therefore, the sin itself has infinite consequences. How many of you have heard someone say, well, I know I sin, but God knows my heart? Yes, he does. But when I sin against, when I sin against a holy, just, infinite God, I've got a problem. And there's only one being who can satisfy it. First eight chapters of Romans, he is, the, he is helping you see that only under the gospel could man be saved. Then there's a parenthesis in Romans. Chapters 9 through 10 are discussing the Jewish problem. 
Paul anticipated that the Jews would ask this question. Paul, God used us to bring the Messiah. How come he rejected us? And Paul's going to tell him he didn't reject you. You rejected him. You rejected his Messiah. You rejected the one that can save you. And it doesn't matter whom God uses anyway. Chapter 9. Because when God uses you, that has nothing to do with your personal salvation. How do you know that, Paul? Didn't God use Pharaoh? Yeah, raised him up. Used him. But Pharaoh heard the same sermons Moses did. And Pharaoh could have... You know, if Pharaoh had obeyed Moses and obeyed God, you know what would have happened? The Jews would have gotten out of Egypt. But since Pharaoh didn't obey God, guess what happened? The Jews got out of Egypt. It doesn't matter whom God uses. That has nothing to do with your individual salvation. That's chapters 9 through 10 and 11. In the last part of the section, as Paul always does, from 12 through 16, we have his practical admonitions based on the fact that we live under the gospel system. Somebody read 12.1 and notice the first few words. Stop, stop, now, brother. I beseech you, what's the one after you? Therefore. Because God did all of this, I beg you, therefore, by his mercies, and so on. So watch the therefore. Uh, brother Whitaker used to say that, God, that Paul wrote the first 11 chapters so he could get to 12.1. <laughs> but uh, he's begging us. Now, notice the first eight chapters you have an outline of his treatise, How is a Man Righteous? Paul sets out to prove it. 9 through 11, about the Jewish problem, the question they asked. Chapters 12 through 16, the practical section. In order to prove his thesis, Paul will tell us in chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, that the patriarchal world that existed and the Gentile world that existed before the cross did not produce salvation. In fact, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. Therefore, that's part of Paul's proof that only in the gospel is, the, is a man righteous. He certainly wasn't righteous under the patriarchal system. He will prove in chapter 2 that the Jewish system didn't produce righteousness either. In fact, he said he's not a Jew that's one outwardly, but he that's a Jew that's one inwardly. And if the Gentile keeps the righteousness of the law, he'll be a Jew inwardly. So those systems didn't produce salvation. In fact, his conclusion is, Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, he didn't say he had to, but he said have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. And brethren, please don't apply that to yourselves. If you're in Christ, do not apply Romans 3.23 to you. You don't come short of the glory of God. You are the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. But the Gentile world that existed before Christ and the Jewish world that existed before Christ had come short of the glory of God. Why? They weren't justified. Look at Romans 3.10, someone. Now let's get verse 9 with it. Romans 3, 9. I need to quit, don't I? Ten minutes, okay. Somebody get Romans 3, 9, please. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my way. Keep going. So I swear in my wrath, they shall... Where are you? Chapter 3, verse 9. Romans? Yes. 
No, I'm in Hebrew. That's what I thought. <laughs> I didn't go back a while ago. Good verses, though. Isn't it? For we, we have before both proved what? Verse 9. Verse 9. What then? We are better than they. No, in no wise. Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? No. For we have before proved. Before proved. When did he prove it? In chapters 2 and 3. Or 1 and 2. He said, I showed you that the Gentile world didn't produce salvation. I showed you that the Jewish world didn't. I proved it to you. Keep reading. Both Jews and Gentiles. Both what? They're all under sin. All these Jews and Gentiles that live back here live under the reign of sin. Who can get rid of that? Keep going. As it is written, there is none righteous. As it is written where? What scriptures? Old Testament scriptures. How many of you have been taught that the Old Testament law did not apply to the Gentiles? Nobody? I'm surprised. I hear that taught all the time. Your Old Testament scriptures apply to the Gentiles, folks. Paul says so right here. He said it's written in the scriptures that the Jew and the Gentile have a problem. When we debated Rubel, he said that no Gentile was subject to the law of God. Just went around operating on his heart. Why, that's ridiculous. Paul says right here that the scriptures were over the Gentile too. You think a Gentile would go to heaven who had other gods before the God of heaven? You think a Gentile would go to heaven who made graven images? You think a Gentile would go to heaven who forgot uh, and, and uh, cursed his neighbor and lied about him and murdered and broke all those commandments? Not hardly. He's under that law too. He's just not under the covenant of Moses. Pardon? He was under the law of uh, the God-fearer. He was under the law of Moses. He was a God-fearer. That's exactly the description of a Jewish, of a Gentile who lived with the Jews and was a stranger in the gate. He was a God-fearer. That's exactly the word that's used of him, in fact. Where was I? I got lost. Where did I, where did I, where was I going? Huh? Oh, let's read verse 10. Keep going. Verse 11. No, no, verse 19. Nineteen. Now we know that what things soever the law saith. It saith to them who are under the, law, under the law. That every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Now I didn't say that, brethren. Paul did. All men were amenable to the law of God back here and now too. Yet we've got brethren running around the brotherhood saying that the guy in the world is not subject to the law of Christ. Yes, he is. He may not obey it, but he's amenable to it. He needs to learn how to obey it, and he needs to obey it. Folks, there's only one Bible. There aren't two of these. Two different books, one for me and one for the world. Whatever's right for me is right for the world. Whatever's wrong for me is wrong for the world. We need to learn that from the book of Romans. Those Gentiles were just as sinful as those Jews were. Why? They were all under the law of God. Is that what it means when he says man without the law because the law unto himself? Himself, right. He, he's, not, he's not in the covenant, but he better learn what God wants. You think, and then and actually in chapter 1, and we haven't studied it yet, he says God gave them up. The, the, generally, the Gentile world was given up. How was Ruth saved? 
She was a Gentile. Who preached to the Ninevites? Jonah, a Jew. Ninevites are Gentile. See, the Old Testament is not a Jewish book, folks. It doesn't say, for God so loved the Jews that he gave his only begotten son. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we're being told that one came to save both the Gentile and the Jew because their systems did not produce salvation. I don't think that's set too well with the Jews. In fact, you remember that he argued with them almost the whole time he was here on his missionary work. He had to argue with them. He said, you compass land and sea to make a proselyte and make him twofold more the child of hell than he was before. Your system's not working. Any questions? We need to stop. Tipping was saying that what you're saying this morning is a contradiction because it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins, and you're telling us that those people back there before Christ were forgiven, were forgiven. in prospect. Not in reality. Let's read Hebrews. Oh, sure. Well, now, in God's mind, yes. Absolutely sure. Yeah. Would that not be why Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yes. They were concerned about what he was about to do. They had a problem with salvation. They didn't want to lose it. Get rid of it. Go ahead. Thou shalt. That's a good law. That means you should take me to lunch. <laughs> I think I'll skip lunch today. I've been eating too much. Any questions? We'll stop. Well, if you'll come back tomorrow, we'll try to pick up a few verses and sort of give you a brief overview. Thank you for your kind attention.